This is Cocktails Distilled, a podcast that takes your favorite spirits and liqueurs from the still to the cocktail glass. In each episode, we talk to distillers and creators about particular expressions that their brand have released, what they are, why they were created, and in what cocktails they can be used. Are you ready to understand what's in your glass, or perhaps should be? Welcome to Cocktails Distilled. While you might have heard of the spirit Pisco, there's a fair chance that you don't really know a lot. Sure, you might know that Pisco is basically a young brandy. You might even know that it's mainly produced in Peru or Chile. But you probably didn't know that there are eight approved grape varietals that range in taste from pepper and smoke to almond and roasted walnut. You also probably didn't know that there are five different Pisco growing regions with 42 valleys and over 500 producers, most of whom are small batch. And in the midst of all that liquid is the Peruvian Pisco brand Suyo that aims to help you understand a little more about what Pisco can offer. To find out more, we talked to Alex Hinderbrand and Ian Leggett from Suyo about small batch producers, grape varietals, and creating an impact in the U.S. market. Gentlemen, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Tiff. Great meeting you. Thanks for having us, Tiff. Now, you describe Pisco as being more versatile than tequila. What do you mean by that? Sure. Uh, I'll take a, a first stab at that one. Tequila, any comments about tequila, I think, are often uh, rooted in the fact that I, I live in the U.S. currently, and tequila is one of the the, the booming spirits currently and that people are really understanding. So it's often helpful to anchor people to that spirit, at least here in the U S and uh, it's a, a decent comparable spirit because it, it shares a lot of characteristics, but in our view, we find it to be more approachable when we're doing blind tastings, when people first encounter the spirit. And we just find that it lends itself to a, a wider array of cocktails than, than tequila tends to do. So it's smooth enough, for instance, to have in a martini or drink neat, of course, which is how we prefer it, yet it has enough complexity and, and variation between the different grape varieties to be able to uh, enjoy on its own or to replace tequila in a margarita or a mixed drink, for instance. We just think it's going to give you a bit more of a distinctive taste. So that's kind of what we mean by that when we, uh, when we talk about any comparisons with tequila or any other agave spirits, for that matter. I suppose there's been a lot of education that you guys have had to do and basing it on something that is so well known in the U.S. like tequila is a good starting point. Absolutely. And uh, we, we we sort of talk about this ad nauseum, how important education is for what we're trying to do. Really, our perspective is that before we, we do any type of tasting about Suyo specifically or any uh, brand awareness campaigns, everything that we do has to lead with education about the category because uh, Pisco still is, is such a relatively nascent category outside of Peru. Anytime we're encountering a, a consumer, we want to make sure we ask the question first, are you familiar with Pisco? Help understand what they know, what they don't know, and and perhaps even get out in front of any misconceptions there may be. Uh, a lot of times people haven't heard about it uh, outside of the Pisco Sour context, so we want to make sure that they're calibrated to what it comes from, it's made from grapes, it's 100% distilled grapes, it's a single distilled spirit, unaged, it's going to be clear, it comes from Peru, it's a denomination of origin product, 
all, all of these things. So uh, absolutely education, just like with any other category that came before us, take Mezcal most recently, tequila before that, uh, really any category that's, uh, that's grown over the past several decades has, uh, had these enormous education campaigns. So, uh, we, we need to do very, very similar things to make sure that consumers are, are, um, are, are familiar with the product. Yeah. And to, to that, I'd also add that, um, because it's made out of grapes, it shares uh, some similarities to how you could drink a wine, right? And with wines, you have a broad spectrum of flavors based uh, on the grapes and also where they're harvested. Uh, with Pisco, you have the same thing. You have eight grapes, as, as you mentioned, they've harvested in five different regions and 42 plus valleys. Uh, this provides an enormous spectrum of flavors that make it super versatile, you know? So if, if, if you're talking about cocktails, uh, one grape flavor from one region might lend itself better to one type of cocktail, and then another one from another region might lend itself better to another cocktail. So that's the beauty of Pisco. It's, you have this large palette of flavors to work with at the same time. I'm sure people don't realize how broad the category is. I assume they look at it the way you might look at vodka and think it's a single entity that is exactly the same no matter where in the region it comes from. How difficult is it then to try and communicate that to people? Right. That it's almost similar, I suppose, to the difference of whiskies. Yeah, exactly. And it's something that Alex and I constantly talk about, right? It's um, right now we're, we're at a time where standard um, or standardization is viewed as a, well, it's, it's increasingly viewed less in less positive light, but we're coming out of a time where standardization was something good. You know, consumers wanted to know that every single batch would taste exactly the same. And that gave, um, gave way for all the industrialized types of spirits that taste exactly the same batch after batch. With Pisco, it's very tough to standardize because you're dealing with harvest years and each year will taste different and you're dealing with different vineyards and each vineyard tastes different, much like in wine, right? So um, yes, while there's a lot of analogs that are, are drawn or, or people instantly see a clear spirit and think about clear tequila, vodka, and gin, I think there's a lot that can be explored through Pisco. But as Alex mentioned earlier, you have to start with education. You have to start uh, telling people why Pisco is different, why it's beautiful, and what can be done with it. If I was just going to add to that, that to your, your question about the, the, the different varieties, we imagine a world where you can walk into a bar and see more than one type of Pisco, of course, but perhaps all eight different available, available grape varieties. We live... In, in a world now where you can walk into particular here in the U.S. and South America as well and in, in Lima where Ian is and uh, of course all across Europe as I've seen you can see dozens of different types of uh, brands certainly of tequila whether they be blancos, reposados, añejos, extra añejos and then you get into the mezcals and you you know there are 30 plus I think different types of uh, agaves you can make mezcal with and you you may find at least here in the U.S a dozen of them at the bar. So we, we just feel like there's room for more than one Pisco. And currently when you walk in the, to a bar, the consumer doesn't have many options. So uh, that, that's part of why I think there's a misunderstanding of what the allowable varieties are because there's only one that's available to them. So 
They may just think Pisco is Pisco is Pisco when the reality is there's eight different very distinct grapes you can use that come from different regions around the country. And, um, you know, we have to obviously delicately think about how we're positioning that because you don't want to overwhelm the consumer. But uh, certainly it's it's slowly but surely. But we have to make sure that one day a consumer walks into a bar and has more than one option because that that's how we will know we succeeded when you order a Pisco and they say, okay, what kind of Pisco would you like? And the consumer can now take it in different directions. We're not there yet. But speaking of that, within your brand Soyu, you describe it as a Pisco discovery initiative. Why is it so important to highlight the small batch Pisco producers? We found that, uh, just a super quick maybe backstory, Ian and I are, are Peruvians and he and I connected uh, several years ago in the U.S. over uh, simply the fact that we are both Peruvian. We met uh, at, at our former employer and uh, we became friends and we, uh, for, for several years, talked about working on a project together that helped connect both of our countries, uh, both Peru and the U.S. And uh, it was a concept that existed for several years. And then uh, Suyo ended up becoming the vehicle for that concept. So uh, in, in, in about 2019, I was back visiting Peru and I uh, was chatting with Ian and then it came up very organically while we were drinking a Capitan in, in Lima, the capital city. We started doing a lot of research. I took several trips back because I live in the U.S. now and uh, we just decided, we, we realized fairly quickly in the process that uh, there are over 500 producers in, in Peru who are making Pisco legally part of the denomination of origin, yet so few of them have access to the capital city in Peru, let alone outside of the country. If you go into you know any bar in the U.S. where I live, you may find one or two brands. Uh, in some of the major cities, you may find three or four brands. Uh, elsewhere around the world, it's even more scarce. So it's very challenging for these producers to get access to the market. And we truthfully felt like the best Pisco that we were finding was in these very remote regions from producers who simply don't have the commercialization expertise or the capital to, to, to get their product outside of their villages, if that's what they desire. So what we decided to do was set up a platform called Suyo and, and a collaborative of producers whereby we serve as the, the platform that they can present their Pisco on. So we're very transparent about where the every single batch comes from, the name of the producer, all of the different characteristics that make each Pisco unique. Uh, the, the terroir, if you will, if you will, which is a, a concept that we know is is very very overused in this industry, but we feel like encapsulates perfectly exactly what we're trying to do because it is made from grapes and it's a single distilled distilled two spirit product. It's a very pisco is a very very terroir driven spirit. So uh, we decided that we want to. It, it, there's more soul in us teaming up with producers and doing this revenue share that we do than simply just going and slapping a private label on a bottle and trying to commercialize it. We, we weren't passionate about that. So uh, we instead embarked on this really, really long journey that's taken several years to establish relationships with our producers, make sure that we're aligned in our vision. We uh, give money back to them and provide advisory expertise via consultants that we hire in Peru. And we want to help them grow their vineyard and improve practices together so that we can grow the category together. But the Pisco Discovery Initiative, I'd say, simplistically speaking, is simply meant to uh, really describe what Ian and I do is we get in his car and we drive around the country and we meet new producers. That's how it all started. 
thankfully now because we're four or so years into the process, we have so many connections that it's a little bit easier. But at the core of everything we do, it's literally Alex and Ian just going out and discovering and finding new produ- producers, creating uh, amazing, hopefully lifelong relationships. And at the same time, we want consumers to be able to discover something new via our product, via Suyo. Now, you've brought out two varietals so far, and they are both based on different grapes. On that idea of you would like people to be able to walk into a bar and see Pisco's of all all eight grape varietals displayed there, is that the future of the brand, that you will bring out all eight grape varietals? I think it's something that we are considering, but not in the short term. The risk of bringing too many varietals too quickly into the market is that you risk confusing um, consumers. And I would rather first establish Pisco as a category and um, have what we call our two goalposts, right? You have the Quebranta and the Italia, which shows the ends of the spectrum in terms of flavor. The Quebranta is... Uh, has less of a bouquet. It's a little bit drier on the nose and has a more a stronger body. The Italia is more aromatic, has floral and citrusy notes, and it's more delicate in the body. So that already anchors consumers to a spectrum of flavors. And then between those two, we want to release different varietals that are unique expressions, right? So we, we've been um, constantly thinking of going into vineyards that are at elevated altitudes or vineyards at the extremes of the denomination of origin and also explore the Pisco's by geography. Uh, But that might not necessarily encapsulate all eight grapes. Ideally, that's the future we envision. It's just a matter of when. So your expressions will be about the producers more than the varietals? Yep, To, to some extent and partnering always making sure that we have the range of flavors across the producers. We're not solely going to focus on one grape varietal across all producers. We want to, uh, we want to you to serve as a, as a platform where consumers can also learn about the different grape varietals and terroirs. But if, if we don't find a grape varietal from a producer that we're passionate about, we might not release it until later on. So I think it's uh, it's, it's a process that builds on itself. And every step of the way, we have to make sure that we're very tactful about the way that we're introducing them because you run the risk of uh, creating marketplace confusion when you introduce too much of something new uh, at or around the same time. So uh, we we constantly grapple with that sort of uh, uh, it's a delicate balance that we try to continue to play as to we have so many fun new things that we try and we want to introduce, but uh, we simply can't throw too many things at the consumer and risk that they lose, they they sort of lose track of the differences between the few. So that is our long term vision, but step by step, we want, we continue to figure out what's the best best way to introduce new varietals. How do you judge that? There's a series of filters that we use. For us, in the center of everything is the relationship with the producer, right? So we first evaluate who we want to work with. Um, we look at every relationship as a long-term relationship. So we want to make sure that producers are aligned in our vision and where they want to, where they want Pisco to get to in the future. Um, and we essentially want to ensure a sustainable relationship, right? We want to make sure that the producers are 
passionate about their Pisco, keep producing good product, keep supplying good product. And that way we can keep giving the customers good product. So that's in, in the center of everything is that human component. The next filter, of course, is, is taste, organoleptic. Uh, so we always evaluate the, the Piscos from a producer. They might have different years of the same grape. Um, and we evaluate all of them and then we we rank them in order of priority that we want to release into the market, right? Maybe there's a few uh, years that require a little bit more resting or a little bit more oxygenation. So we let those rest. And then there's a few that are already ready. And those are the ones we launch. And then the final and, and last step is a chemical analysis. So we put all of the Pisco samples that we send uh, to the U.S., for example, through a uh, gas spectroscopy. So we make sure that the, in the components within the Pisco um, line up with what the DO um, requires. So for example, the DO requires that certain volatile compounds fall within certain ranges. And that is critical because if it falls outside of those ranges, it no longer should be denominated Pisco. It should be just called grape distillate. Right? So that's also very critical. Now you've talked about terroir. How distinctive is the terroir from one region of Peru to the other? So Peru is actually one of the most biodiverse um, climates in the world. We have, um, I want to say, upwards of 80% of all microclimates. And I'm talking across Peru, right? Pisco is only grown in the coast, um, which in itself has several climates. So you can... um, you can go an hour from Lima and you'll get this humid, semi-arid climate. Then you go a couple hours from Lima and you get this, this desert climate with a lot of sun. And as you move into the valleys, which increase altitudes, the climate starts changing based on the altitude. So for example, right now we work with two vineyards, one that is really, really close to the ocean. And this vineyard isn't protected by any mountain range or any trees or anything. So it receives constant wind from the ocean. And this mineral breeze does a couple of things. One, it cools the grapes. Uh, by cooling the grapes, it, it um, enhances the acidity uh, in the grapes. So it, it maintains the grapes a little bit cooler so the, the sugar content doesn't spike. Um, and on the other side, it being ocean breeze, it provides minerals into the grapes of the skins, which are uh, subsequently carried through into the fermentation and distillation process. So you end up with a Pisco that's dried, has some mineral notes, and I particularly love that Pisco based on its nuanced flavors that are more towards the mineral side. The other vineyard that we work with, Fundo La Esperanza, it's nestled in the Valley of Mallets, about 11 kilometers inwards from the other vineyard. And it starts receiving some protection from the mountain ranges from the Andes. So that does a couple of things. It, it shelters it from the ocean wind, so it no longer has this effect, uh, as much of the cooling effect or, or the ocean breeze. And it also limits the amount of sun exposure because you have the mountain ranges to the sides. So you end up having grapes that are a little bit smaller, but have uh, a, a bit more concentrated sugar in them. As a result, the pisco is a little bit sweeter. It has notes of uh, compote, and it, it has a totally different profile, right? Uh, coast versus mountain. And that's in one valley. So go to the next valley, things change entirely. Now, explain one thing to me. If you are working with small producers, 
does that mean that ultimately each expression becomes a limited edition? Yes. Yeah. Uh, not only because we work with different producers, but because it's much like wine, for example, each if, if you think about small vineyard wines, each release of the wine is a limited edition because each year there will be subtle changes to the wine, right? So that happens with the producers we work with. The 2020 um, edition might be different than the 2021 edition in a single vineyard. And on top of that, we also work with multiple uh, producers. So we try to maintain a long-term relationship with these producers, but the Pisco from one producer will be different than the Pisco from another producer. And we'll always work with small batch producers trying to keep quantities small and, um, and limited to that extent. So we'll never mix grapes or vineyards. And this is a key point that we, we feel has been a, a little bit lost in, in the messaging, uh, the Pisco category historically, that even the largest producers in theory have vintages. So as Ian was just describing, just like a wine, their 2018 is going to taste differently than their 2022 simply because you have to work with the, the grapes that the harvest provided you and you can't dilute it with water and you cannot age it. So I, I think there's an opportunity here to make sure that consumers understand that fact and appreciate the distinctiveness that exists within each batch. Whereas I think historically a lot of uh, the, the Pisco uh, presentation of the category has been trying to present it as if it's any other spirit when that's that's not the reality. And I think we have a really, really beautiful part about this that the denomination of origin has really provided us that it creates us a set of guidelines that uh, requires that we end up what, what is ultimately the, the purest, uh, the purest, purest expression of the raw material in distillate form. That's what the denomination of origin requires that we make. And so many producers are making this. I just don't think they're really leaning into this concept of terroir as much as we feel that it should be to allow consumers to appreciate it the most. When you start looking at the grape varietals and the terroir and the years that it's produced and things like that, that's an enormous amount on your shoulders to try and communicate to a public that doesn't know a lot about it to start with. It is almost overwhelming. <laughs> very much so. Uh, very, very much so. P part of why we believe that uh, this is not something we, we can do ourselves and we try our best and we'll continue to try our best to make sure that we're teaming up with other Pisco producers, other brands to help us with this uh, massive, massive lift of educating consumers uh, it's not helpful to the category, in our opinion, to just keep trying to get bottles out there to make more Pisco Sours, which is a beautiful spirit. But uh, I think we need to work a little bit harder to make sure consumers understand what it is that they're tasting. And we, we can't do it alone. So uh, we're figuring it out as, as we progress, obviously, through this. There are a lot of different uh, commercialization activities that uh, we want to embark on that we haven't yet and that we have started on. But it, it's it's a team effort. It will always be a team effort. We overuse this phrase all the time, but we truly believe the rising tide raises all ships. So if Pisco producers can work together, we believe that we can accomplish something really great. Now, you mentioned Pisco Sour. That is a cocktail that has had an impact uh, in the U.S. market and also the Chicano. 
But I imagine that you believe the spirit can do so much more behind the bar. Yeah. Um, I think Bisco is, is one of the most versatile spirits out there. It's anchored and it, to a certain extent, has been hiding behind the Pisco Sour, which I particularly love, but I also think it has way more potential than just being part of Pisco Sour or Chilcano. Uh, for example, my favorite cocktail is a, uh, a riff on the Manhattan, right? It's Pisco and vermouth and sweet vermouth. A and it's, it's amazing. It's such a simple cocktail that in sweet or tart ingredients, it's just a mix of two well well-developed products and you get an amazing amazing cocktail so that's part of what we're also trying to do is educate not only on what pisco is but how you can use it right and and make that link in the consumer set that if you have your favorite cocktail call it a margarita or call it a gin tonic try swapping out the spirit for some pisco and you'll be surprised and i think that's one of the key things people need to realize it's it's versatility if people are not necessarily going with classic cocktails and just doing swap outs, if they're almost trying from scratch, what sort of flavors work well with the liquid? I'll caveat this saying that it depends on the Pisco, right? You have so many different flavors on the Pisco, but uh, to put it in simple terms, I, I would suggest if a consumer is starting to experiment with Pisco, try to go for more of the more of the citrus floral ingredients. So I, I would definitely put citrus fruit in it, tropical fruits. Pineapple goes really well. Uh, lemon goes really well. It also goes really well with ginger, for example. And the chicana is basically ginger ale and pisco. So anything that you can do to highlight the floral citrus notes of an Italia, for example, would go really, really nicely with the pisco. Alex, you might have something to add there. Yeah, I would just... <laughs> emphasize simplicity in how we're trying to position cocktails. Of course, the world of mixology is uh, an amazing and can be sometimes complex and uh, unapproachable to some people. One, uh, it's, de it's definitely an amazing thing. And we love watching uh, mixologists work with it and make these really, really exquisite cocktails. But for the at-home consumer, we want to make sure that Pisco is very approachable. So it's sort of a balance of, you know, bartenders are your best salespeople. We want to make sure that they're presenting it to consumers at the bar and these really amazing cocktails, while at the same time, make sure that people understand that just like pick your favorite spirit that you have sitting at the bar on the bar cart at home, you can, you can make a Manhattan riff, a Capitan, you can make a, a Pisco Rita if you wanted to, you can make a Pisco Martini instead of vodka, you know, you can make an old fashioned instead of whiskey, use Pisco. There's so many different things. And we want to make sure that take a Pisco sour, for instance. Yes. Amazing cocktail. Uh, really, really fun to go out and order one. Sometimes you may not want to make one at home. You may not want to have to mess with making the egg white and that's okay. Well, here's a simple cocktail for you. So it's making sure that we're uh, making it approachable to people, which is part of why we lean on the classics quite a bit. You mentioned earlier the profit share on the bottles tell us how that works. Yeah, of course. So uh, again, because we're, we're so new, this is something that is still continuing to evolve. But what we do is a direct revenue share with each of our producers. So there are profit shares that exist in this world, and there are revenue shares. And without getting into the specifics, uh, revenue share uh, is simply a more transparent, in our opinion, way to spread the 
the, the, the wealth of what this business has created, which to date is, is not much, of course, because we're still growing. But, you know, you can you can sort of fudge profit any way that you want and say that you're sharing that with your producers. We want to be more transparent and use a top line number. And then we cut a check at the end of each year to each of our producers based on volume that they sold. So we were able to cut a check at the end of 2021, like the beginning of 2022, once the year ended to the one producer whose batch we had in the market that year. This year, we'll be able to do that same thing with two producers, which will be really fun and we're excited about. And the idea is that they reinvest it in their vineyards, hopefully, but it's ultimately up to their discretion. So uh, we already provide, as I mentioned, consulting services with them. Ian works very closely with a couple different consultants, go to the vineyard and uh, test the soil and make sure that they're doing things in a way that are really helping them maximize their yield and, and make the processes, I guess, as optimal as possible. But on top of that, we're giving them dollars that go right into their pockets that if they want to buy new equipment, if they want to pay, give it to their people, if they want to take everyone out to lunch every day, you know, it's totally up to their discretion. But the idea is that uh, we grow the category together and we want them to feel like they're they're part of this because they are. They are the main people we actually want to focus on. So there's kind of two components. We we pay them what we believe to be well above market prices for their Pisco because we have spent so much time meeting with producers in the market. But then also we do a direct revenue share where we dollars off of every single bottle go go right back to them. No 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 funny business on the numbers that you sometimes get with the profit share. You mentioned that last year there was one producer that you were paying and this year there will be two. Does that mean that there will be an expression every year? And hence that number of producers will increase every year? Yeah, the, the idea with our model, Tiff, is that um, we want to keep it to a certain extent decentralized um, and we never want to uh, produce more than what the market requires, right? Because then you can run the risk of overcommitting to producers, and that's not great for anyone. Um, so what we what we do is we gauge how the market is reacting. Based on that, we start relationships with different producers. We have uh, producers who all, who we already want to work with. It's just a matter of when. I I would love to bring on a new producer or multiple producers in a year. I think that will be the case in the future. It's just a matter of when the market is ready for that. But but yeah, we're, we're very cautious in setting promises that the market might not be ready for. So we, we always uh, like maintaining ultimate transparency with our producers. And I would just add to that very quickly. We have long-term agreements. We we establish long-term agreements with our producers. So the last thing we want to do is commit to purchasing an entire year's harvest. And we want to do this in, in advance several years. Last thing we want to do is commit to purchasing from, from them and not be able to purchase it because we have too many other products in the market that we haven't been able to sell. So we have to make sure that uh, demand is helping us grow our relationships at the same time. Now, speaking of that market, um, the U.S. market is not the easiest for any brand to walk into because it's basically 50 different countries. I imagine it has required a fair amount of strategy on your part. I guess I would say it's been unique for us because Ian and I don't come from this industry. So uh, in a sense, at the beginning, we, we kind of had this feeling of, 
uh, we're coming in bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, and we're going to disrupt this thing. There's no way it can be this complicated. And then, of course, just like everyone else, you realize, wow, this is very, very complicated. So our focus has been growing relationships organically. Again, because we are so new to this, we've had the luxury of being able to uh, patiently grow this business. So we didn't go outside and raise capital, for instance, and spend millions of dollars to build a business. Instead, Ian and I chose to uh, organically do this ourselves, bootstrap our business, learn the market, spend as much time as we possibly can on the road, meeting bartenders, liquor store owners, industry professionals, gauging what they like, gauging challenges that they've seen in the market, things that we feel we can do differently to help that uh, and really just learning at, at, while we're growing. So it wasn't like we had a strategy at the beginning that we're executing on. Thankfully, we've, we've learned a lot and we are starting to form much more specific strategies, but there's no cookie, cookie cutter solution to any of this. So our focus to try to be more specific has been specifically on the East, because I live on the East Coast. I spend a lot of time in New York meeting with bar programs and liquor stores that have a focus on more uh, innovative spirits and cocktail making and really programs that end up being trendsetters in the industry. That's where we want to focus most of our time because these uh, these folks are very influential in the industry. They're going to potentially go start their own programs. They're going to be very influential on Instagram. They're going to be on podcasts just like this. And uh, so, so that's where we've been focusing most of our efforts to date. And it's just been Ian and myself, truthfully. So uh, as we grow, we're going to have to build our team, which will be fun. And we want to continue to focus on these, uh, what I would consider really high profile accounts. And then hopefully it sort of trickles down, uh, the education trickles down into other areas as well. Yeah. And to that, I I would add that our centrist strategy is always keeping things uh, very organic and human. Um, we we don't believe in the method of just throw money at it and it'll grow. We think that um, particularly in this industry, which is a very social industry, you need to create that human connection. And it's it's the one thing that Alex and I love doing. It's just meeting new people, getting to know new people in the industry and learning from them. And I think that's core to to everything. And it'll eventually lead to sales. You know, it's um, I, I think it needs to go through that route, which is a little bit less invasive, less aggressive than maybe the traditional approach, but it's the the way that resonates the most with us. And, and I would just keep in mind, uh, Tiff, you know this better than we do, I'm sure. Category growth takes a very, very long time. And that's what we're most focused on. Suyo growth, of course, comes with that as well, but it's about category growth. And no category was really <laughs> uh, created overnight or even uh grown significantly in a matter of a year or two. This takes a very long time. It's about we're, we're elevating a category while at the same time building relationships. And hopefully these relationships are seeing what we're seeing. Hopefully these people are more likely to now go get on a flight to visit Peru and understand the beauty of what this is, just like they are today willing to hop on a flight and go to Oaxaca to visit a Palenque, uh, Mezcal Palenque, or they, to go to Jalisco to visit tequila. These are all very common things in the bartender community today. We want to create a world where it's very common to get on a flight, visit visit Lima, Peru to enjoy the gastronomy and then drive a couple hours south to visit the epicenter of Pisco production and then start exploring different regions. You know, there's there's so much beauty that we feel like hasn't really been un- uncovered, unfortunately, outside of Peru. And 
thankfully, gastronomy, because I reference it, it actually has helped considerably uh, for that. Peruvian food has become very, very well-known on a global scale over the past several years. So we feel like we can help help ride the coattails of that as well. If people would like more information, they can, of course, go to your website, which is uh, suyupisco.com, or connect with the brand via your socials. Yeah, please do. And uh, I would just add, uh, Ian and I are very open and transparent about everything. We love hearing from, from people. So feel free to email us both anytime, alex at suyopisco.com or ian at suyopisco.com. DM us on Instagram. It's always Ian or myself responding directly to that. Shoot us, uh, shoot us a note on, on any platform. We're always there. And then you can also buy a bottle on our website if that's of interest as well. Where can people find it? I mean, the normal entry is New York, Florida, California. Is that the road you've taken? Two of the three, yes. We, uh, Florida is a uh, high priority for us in 2023. We are not in Florida yet. We work with the distributor who uh, gave us access to New York and California. So that's where we focused our efforts so far in 2022. 2023, uh, via a different distributor, we will be looking into Florida. But you're right, those are the high-profile markets. New York, liquor stores, bars, restaurants, uh, all, all of those locations are available on our website. If you go to suyopisco.com, find us. Or you can, um, in California as well, same deal. Uh, you can look on the map and you can see pr- primarily San Francisco and Los Angeles to date, but we're continuously growing. So hopefully that builds. And then uh, if you live somewhere else, go to our website and uh, you can buy now. We partnered with a liquor store in New York to have access to all 50 states. And then unfortunately, we don't have a great way to send uh, to foreign markets yet, but um, that's uh, all, all good things to come. We want to make sure that uh, everyone who wants to try it has has access to it. Uh, we just haven't haven't been able to tackle uh, Europe yet, for instance. All right. Well, look, thank you both for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you, Tiff. This was uh, really fun. We enjoyed the conversation and uh, uh, happy to uh, do this anytime. Thank you. Thanks, Tiff. It's great chatting.